Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. We have honest conversations with folk musicians, and I am your host, Cindy Howes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. David Wax started visiting Mexico in 2001, and there he became enamored with the music of central Mexico, particularly with styles of sun music. He would spend summers going back to Mexico while studying at Harvard, Latin American history and literature. He was able to get a Harvard fellowship that allowed him to live in Mexico for a year, immersing himself in the music through attending local parties called Fandangos and learning from the locals. He was introduced to Sue Slezak, an old-time and Irish fiddle player who would later become his bandmate, wife, and mother of their two kids, They met in 2007. The pair lived in Boston until about 2015 when they moved to Sousa's hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia. They've toured like crazy throughout their career, even bringing their kids along and incorporating them into their on-the-road lifestyle. David says, This band started as a DIY project where we basically said yes to the universe, never turned down a gig, and happily played people's living rooms. David and Suze have stayed fairly nimble throughout their history and have seen a lot of the industry turn on its head. David Wax Museum have been a buzz band, an NPR darling, and the hottest ticket in town, and have come out the other side of that fairly unscathed and grounded. David speaks to the changes he's experienced over the years, with a particular focus on how he's remained resilient during a year with no touring. Now going into year two of lockdown, David Wax Museum are about to release many things in 2021. First up is their new record, Euphoric Euroboric. They've been releasing new music in advance on their Patreon page, so follow and support them there to stay up to date on the latest. And fear not, Suze will certainly be getting her own episode of Basic Folk. All right, we're going to take a listen to a song from the new David Wax Museum album, which if you're listening to this on podcast release day, comes out tomorrow. If you are a normal human being and (laughs) listening to this after uh, April 15th, the album is out And we will take a listen to the new song, Juniper Jones, and then we'll get to our conversation with David Wax on Basic Fog. I want to know what you sing at home when you think that nobody's listening. How do you tell those who wish you well that their whispers are not worth the whispering? Oh, 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 you don't want to be be great oh, oh, oh. 
Okay, David Wax. Hey. This is cool. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I've got a lot of questions about your life. So here we go. Let's dig in. You are originally from Columbia, Missouri, uh, or is there certain parts of Missouri that say Missouri? I think that the distinction is if you're from rural Missouri, you say Missouri. Okay, got it. I think sometimes like people leave Missouri and then they want to pose as like more authentic Missourians and they start saying Missouri, but Missouri. it's usually, I think it's like put on. Yeah, I'm in Pittsburgh right now and a lot of people like to say, like people who are from Pittsburgh, like really from Pittsburgh, they use the term yins instead of y'all. And then mm -hmm. they also say Pittsburgh. So sometimes others who are not from here originally or like are not from rural areas will say it. But anyways, sidebar. Um, <laughs> great. I read that you um, listened to all country growing up and then you started writing songs with your cousin Jordan, Jordan Wax. Jordan Wax. When you guys were, were you the same age? Yeah, just six months apart. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I want to hear about your relationship with your cousin Jordan. So at age 13, you guys started writing songs together. Like, what was it like to have someone like Jordan to play music with when you were just starting to learn? I mean, for me, it was the perfect collaborator. Um, it was my best friend and family. We already had kind of a, actually, we had a creative relationship already before we started writing songs. We wrote short stories and directed like home movies before we got into music. So I think we already had a working relationship that like we kind of knew each other's strengths and there wasn't a lot of ego involved in it. And so I was just very fortunate to have, you know, like a creative companion who, you know, at that early age when you're, you're learning about songwriting or discovering music, I think it's just, it's so important and such a gift to have someone on that journey with you. Mm. Um, I'm sure the validation was great for both of you. For sure. And and even just, I, I mean, he's just such a gifted musician that, um, you know, I could just be stuck on a song and then he could just finish it in some brilliant way. And um, you kind of just like learn, then you're like, oh, how did he do that? And um, looking back, I'm like, yeah, what I don't I don't think I would have gotten into music if I if I hadn't gotten into it together with my mm -hmm. cousin. You just we kind of pushed each other in different ways, and he was doing okay. So I'm gonna I want to start playing guitar because he's doing that, and mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like you kind of egg each other on. Yeah, we just kind of created this little uh, musical world, musical dialogue that opened up a world for us to explore. Yeah, he got into Latin folk music first, and so he kind of brought me along on that journey. Oh, how did that happen for him? I think, I mean, we both, you know, around the same time got into Buena Vista Social Club when that record came out. Um, and, but he was the one who was like, oh, I'm going to learn these songs. Like, I'm going to actually like start playing all these songs. I mean, he was more uh, fluent and um, at Spanish. And so that was less daunting to him. And we had this Paraguayan exchange student who joined our rock band, our high school rock band. And so then he kind of introduced us to this world of Latin rock. Oh, that's so cool. And Andres Calamaro and just, you know, kind of blew our minds with stories of, of life in Paraguay. And so we had um, these couple signposts 
um, this, this older Cuban woman that we got to hang out with to work on our Spanish. And then we kind of just developed this very loving relationship with her and hung out with her every week. And In your town? Yeah, and in, in Columbia, Missouri, this all was happening. So I think someone might have an idea of like, oh, you grew up in Missouri, like pretty white bread, you know, background. But I was just very lucky to have these kind of moments that opened up my eyes to a larger cultural landscape beyond um, Missouri. But even, I mean, we also had a great introduction to bluegrass music and to Ozark fiddle music. And, and there was a pretty vibrant scene mm. outside of our little college town bubble. So, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good uh, music education that came pretty organically, pretty naturally growing up there. Do you remember why you started writing songs? Um, partly it was hearing uh, Rocky Raccoon. And I think just hearing the Beatles do it, I mean, some of it's just like falling in love with the White Album and like, oh my God, like mm. music can do that. You can like take someone on this journey through each song and it's so transportive. And I, I always think it's so interesting because it's like Paul McCartney imitating like a rural American folk music with that song. But for, mm. for something about it, when I was 13, that just, that was like my gateway drug into American folk music and... I don't know, that that record is still just a touchstone record for me. Sure. When I think about recording music and... Um, Rocky yeah, Raccoon know, we, is such a weird... It's so funny that you're like, that's what it made me want to write songs. It's like <laughs> such a weird song. Yeah. I remember listening to it, like just being like, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those grades, a story song. And I think that that's also a way to get into it when you're younger and you're just like, what is, who are these characters? You know, like what yeah. is... This is, I want to know more about these guys. Like what, what's the bat? You know, there's so much that's left unsaid and you kind mm. of like paint this picture in your mind and you're on this journey with it. Um, I think also uh, Jordan's older brother, Mark. Mark Wax. Mark Wax was in a punk rock band called Pastor Paul. And we went and saw him play and we were like, he's he doesn't really sing very well and he doesn't really play guitar, but he looks so cool and he's in a band. <laughs> and we we actually know we actually study music we can do this like if mark can do it and i mean mark also happens to be this extremely charismatic performer so he made it look easy and he kind of could inhabit that role at a very young age of like being a punk rock star wow um but we had that template of that the older sibling yeah yeah you know that was kind of like doing it made it look cool too and we're like oh yeah we can do that do you have a, an older sibling as well yeah, also very musically um, inclined. My my older brother was a really serious, and still is a very serious jazz guitarist. Cool. And so they paved the path pretty, pretty clearly for us. It made it easy to follow in their footsteps. Right, because you and Jordan are now jazz and punk musicians. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know it, but secretly, <laughs> if you really listen. Um, so I read that after high school, you went to. A very interesting place, Deep Springs College in California. It's like a working farm as well as a college with like, you said 26 boys were there. And I read that like there's no more than 30 students at a time. So it's been like 20 years since you were there, but it sounds absolutely wild. Um, what have you taken with you from that uh, wild experience? Well, I will say that 
Deep Springs, after a hundred years of being single sex, just went co-ed in the last couple of years. All right. So good for Deep Springs to kind of get caught up with the times. But I went there and I, I don't know, I was, I, I decided I wasn't going to do music and I was going to pursue my academic interests and my political interests. But, you know, being in this academic environment that I loved, I still just wanted to play music and I just found my, um, I came to understand my role as a musician in a small community mm. and value it more than I had growing up in Columbia. Um, I think you're like, oh yeah, what is, kind of brings everybody together. It loosens everybody up in a certain way. It's like this really cool way to connect and collaborate in the community with different musicians. Um, I remember, yeah, just singing with like my anthropology teacher and my painting teacher and the chef. And like the four of us had, you know, did a couple songs together. And then, so after my first year there, I started um, spending time in Mexico and worked a summer in Mexico. And then I came back to Deep Springs and we just hired uh, a Mexican anthropologist as part of the long-term faculty. And so I, I got this incredible mentor at the perfect moment in my life where I'm basically getting one-on-one -on -one tutoring with him. And he's just teaching me his whole like catalog in his brain of Spanish folk songs. Oh, wow. Good for you to take advantage of it pretty amazing opportunity yeah I just felt so lucky I just you know it's just like when you're a great teacher comes in your life at the perfect moment when you're mm -hmm. just like your brain's on fire with new ideas and like I've just been living in rural Mexico and was trying to make sense of my experience and then I just was so fortunate to meet Gary Gosen at that moment so if you could like contrast the different ways in which you absorbed the music of of Mexico in terms of like you lived in Mexico for a year and you spent summers in Mexico, um, you know, going to Fandangos and like actually like living it versus like learning it in an academic setting. Yeah, I mean, I never, um, even though I, I learned so much from Gary Gosen, it wasn't done in an academic way. And I don't really have an, like an ethnomusicological background at all. I always was interested, I studied Latin American history and literature um, that's what my degree was in, but somehow I always was able to keep music out of that. It was always kind of this separate thing that um, when I was learning it with Gary, it was just like this pure love and passion for this music. We weren't like analyzing it or if the history was a part of it, it was just because we were kind of immersed in like just sharing this love of, of the music and where it came from. Sounds very like casual. Yeah, it wasn't like, let's study this. It was just like, oh, I want to teach. Hey, have you heard this song before? And then we just like learned this. And it was kind of like a way to improve my Spanish mm. and like done through the guise of a Spanish class, you know, but it wasn't music theory or ethnomusicology. And I, and I never was drawn to that side of um, music making or even just thinking about music in those terms. I, I remember... This is after I graduated from college and I, I'm on this fellowship in Mexico and I, I'm having all these meetings with Mexican musicologists and kind of just trying to get ideas of who I should go study with. And I met this American ethnomusicologist down there who had made incredible field recordings and had contributed so much as an ethnomusicologist. And I was kind of telling him about my idea of like, oh, I'm going to be here and I'm going to, I'm not going to study it. I really just want to learn to play and like take lessons and learn these songs. And he looked down on me and he just thought that was the worst thing he'd ever heard and that like for him that was kind of like this music you study it and, and you have a relationship to it that's 
almost like one directional and it's pure that way mm -hmm. but if you start getting involved and in playing it and trying to learn it like he 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 just thought that was so insulting and kind of like a like cult, <laughs> like a you were crossing like a cultural line that you shouldn't cross as like a white person yeah that's the impression he gave me when i was kind of like here's this idea i'm so excited i just want to like learn and find teachers and you know but I just wasn't interested in that in approaching in that academic way. I just I, I approached it as someone who just loved playing music and loved folk music and wanted to you know learn these new instruments. And there were just so many teachers that had no students. The teachers I found, there wasn't like a new crop of young people that were learning the music. Mm -hmm. There was nobody, and so I felt like, oh man, th this music has been blended and. It is a hybrid of all these different styles of music that came together, and I couldn't understand what was problematic about me wanting to learn it. I think there are a lot of um, complicated cultural dynamics, and especially as an American, like as someone who's extremely privileged, and I don't want to deny that there are, um, yeah, there are different layers of complexity to like what's going on there mm -hmm. as, as someone coming from this culture that's like so dominant in different ways and a, a history that has been so oppressive. How were you received when you would find like Mexican teachers? Like it was, was that person the only person who kind of gave you pushback on that? For the most part, the teachers that I met were just excited to have someone that wanted to learn. And I think that they, they looked at me as a musician for the most part. And I think a lot of them have had experience with American musicians that have contributed a lot mm. in terms of making great recordings, transcribing the music, bringing them to tour in America. Like th I think they've seen that American musicians and fans of this music can offer a lot and that there can be a dialogue and that, um, that we have different things that can help out. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, there, I did a show once in Chicago with, we played with one of my favorite Mexican folk bands as a co-bill that was set up and nobody said anything to me about it but after we played the guys in this band like wouldn't talk to us and so I think that there was clearly a nerve struck and that they oh. didn't like what they saw right but there is a power dynamic of like I don't think they're going to say that to my face there is like I don't want to like be um, blasé about what's going on here mm -hmm. you know like for the most part, my experience has been so positive with the Latino community, with Mexican musicians. Like, the vast majority of the time has been extremely positive. Mm -hmm. But I, I remember that moment. It just sticks with me where I'm like, I, I just, and maybe it's like this internal, like my own self doubts about it. Or those are those are instincts. Don't <laughs> ignore your intuition. Yeah, I'm mean, just like, there's something. This is this yeah. does not sit right with those guys. They're not happy with what they heard. Yeah, and those guys are younger. And there's, I think. Yeah, there's a lot going on with their relationship to the music and coming and touring in America. I've had other experiences more recently with Zanen Zeferino, who's one of my favorite Son Jarocho musicians who played in this seminal band called Chuchum Bay. And he's been back and forth a lot between America and Mexico and Canada and teaching workshops. And he was playing and collaborating with Radio Jarocho, this New York band that plays Son Jarocho. And we had them open some shows for us in the Northeast. And he was so excited that I love this music and that for him, he was like, I, I can't believe that the music that my grandparents played in rural Mexico has like found its way into your music mm -hmm. and that it's making all these people happy. And like, 
that you want to have us open the show. And like a big part of our show is them coming back on stage and collaborating and all of us coming down and doing like a mini Fandango. And he talked about it in such a heartfelt way. And he's, I think, an older musician that is just excited about the music spreading and is not kind of like analyzing like, oh, well, he's not doing it right or not the proper, correct way of, you know, he, he kind of saw that it was this inspirational jumping off point for me. Mm-hmm. And then it was this kind of bridge and a way to share my love of this music. And so when he said that on stage and he's like talking in Spanish and, you know, I don't know how many other people in the audience were could understand him, but that brought me to tears when he started talking about it like that. You talked about the Fandangos that you've played at. Can you talk a little bit more about what those were like and how did you see those directly impacting the way you perform and connect to an audience? Hmm. Sometimes when I start talking about Mexican folk music, I do find that I need to make um, a distinction uh, because I've I've spent time studying three different styles of Mexican folk music, mm-hmm. all generally called son mexicano. And there's son calentano from the West, from Michoacan and Guerrero, uh, son huasteco, from kind of the central Huasteca region, and then Son Jarocho, which is where the Fandangos are. And that's this real thriving music scene. Like I think that Son Calentano and Son Huasteco, it's a more complex picture in terms of the struggles that the musicians are having or are young people learning the music. But Son Jarocho is having this incredible revival and has kind of been on this amazing upswing for the last 35 years where young people have really picked up the torch and there's this real thriving uh, musical scene. And some of it has to do with the power of the fandango. And I think this experience where there are these events where musicians can come together and at any level of experience, like all are welcome to play. And it can be, you know, four or five people to like a hundred people. And it's very difficult music to master but it's easy music to start playing at a basic level with the three Mm. chords and so it has this way in that um i don't know and i think these events also are just such a beautiful celebratory way of gathering people and marking the saint days or the different uh holidays they do it around uh christmas and leading up to this big festival in in late january early february they're just like doing fandangos every night in these communities and at different houses um and just you know someone's kind of the host and is kind of bringing out food and beverages for everybody and i don't know there's this they call convivencia just like people living together and being together and it stretches on all night i mean they'll go until three or four in the morning and I think just, you know, anytime you're part of something that you're like, oh man, there's like a way to be a musician and to play music. And it's so integrated seamlessly into daily life. And it so clearly is woven into how people find meaning and make meaning out of being together in community. Mm. And I think sometimes in America, I've just... I certainly dealt with culture shock when I got back to Boston after living in Mexico and and kind of struggling with, yeah, like the performers are always up on the stage and there's this distance and separation and there's the spotlights and it's like this specialized skill. And I don't know, there's just all these 
layers put between the performer and the audience. And it seems like, oh yeah, it just happens at this club and it's just, I don't know, we kind of like all these demarcated zones where it is allowed to happen or where music is, where we go for music. And Mm -hmm. so I think that I was inspired by what I saw in Mexico and, and felt like we can do this however we want to do it. Like the way that this is set out is arbitrary. And if we want to just play at someone's house and if we want to get off the stage and get in the middle of the audience and gather people around in a circle, like that just felt so natural. And yeah, I think that there were like certain rules that I felt like other people were playing by that my experience in Mexico and going to the Fandangos meant that I, I didn't take those as a given. We've been experimenting a lot with up until the pandemic forced us to pause. We were, we've been doing these blindfolded shows where we like set the room up in an interesting way and people are kind of have their backs to each other and they're in these very strange formations of chairs, but we can walk around and weave around the room and play. And we do it with, with Lowland Hum, this other band here in Charlottesville and guest musicians. And we kind of like encircle people inside the songs. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things going on and why that is appealing to me and what I've loved about kind of building this, this experience, we call it golden hour. Um, but I think that it does tap into something for me about just like when you're immersed in the song in a fandango and you're just like near the tarima, the raised wooden platform where people are dancing and there's just like you're engulfed by acoustic music. There's just a feeling that I think we don't get in America the way we listen and experience live music that I've really been inspired by the way I've gotten to to be inside a song in a totally different way down there. It's like so vulnerable the golden hour shows sound so vulnerable, but even in the way that you and Suze would play before that, where you'll walk around in the audience and it's like so disarming, you know, for an American audience. Good job, David. <laughs> <I> know, <right? laughs> um, so I have a question about academia, which I know that you do not miss that world, um, but you had thought that maybe you would be an academic in your career. Uh, In fact, like before the band took off, you were like teaching a sociology class at Harvard. That's not the question. The question is, how did you relate to that world at the time, like before music took off and how maybe do you relate to it now at all? Because like oftentimes, you know, in terms of like thinking of stereotypes, like people will think of academics as having like a certain way about them, like kind of stiff, not charismatic, like would never probably play their guitar in the middle of the audience, you know, like basically the opposite of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question. I'll say first, I'll preface it with, I do miss the world a little bit. There's a certain camaraderie and um, I don't know, just like there's a, I feel like a lot of my intellectual journey as an adult leaving school is like there's some part of it that's like a little more lonely, I guess. Um, I just had such a great experience in school. I was so lucky um, to be at a place like Deep Springs, which is just like 25 people that want to be there and that are just so excited about learning. And that really does change a vibe when it's like people want to be here. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, at at Harvard, you get where where I finished my degree. 
it's a little more complicated picture because I think the thread that binds everybody there is ambition, not love of learning. But you can find a lot of people that are so smart and are really passionate about being in the classroom. And so th those people were very easy to find and you kind of can find each other. And um, I don't know, there, there was this counterculture around the, the Harvard co-op where I live that was clearly people that were not, you know, there to get an investment banking job or I don't know, you know, that were driven by other concerns. And sometimes I feel like when I say that about Harvard, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because the people I, I know or even I barely know are doing incredible things in service to humanity. And so... Mm -hmm. um, and you can stay in their guest house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I felt like, okay, I clearly have this part of me that is drawn to this world and I could just like live in an archive and um, just you know, I could just sit around and read all day and write papers. Like I have some part of me that is drawn to that and that enjoys that and thrives in that. And there's all these like reward structures built into it that you kind of like, it's easy. Once you get on that track, there's something that's a little hard to leave once you're in there and you feel like you're, oh yeah, you're, this is cool. I love, it. I've got great friends and I've got these incredible teachers. And there were just some really interesting uh, one of my favorite teachers was, at Harvard was John Womack. I was his research assistant for a couple of years, and he's just one of the coolest people I know. Um, like, I think you can kind of have this idea about academics, and then you meet someone like John Womack, who's done this, like, incredible work and is so engaged as a human being with, like, the labor movement and, like, responding to Hurricane Katrina and just did this seminal research on Emiliano Zapata. And when I was in Mexico and Womack gave me all these introductions, like it just opened all these doors because people were like, oh, John Womack sent you. Okay. Like he was just like a star there. Hmm. And people would kind of give me the benefit of the doubt because I was sent there by John Womack. And so like you're, we were talking about that stereotype of the academic. It's like, well, man, the people that really had these profound influences on me, like the incredible poets I studied with at Harvard, like Jory Graham, is just like, she's a force of nature. And she's like, she, yeah, she's like surviving by part by being a teacher in the academic setting, but she's like one of the great American poets. Hmm. And I got to study with her. Like, I just feel like it's so, uh, uh, not to reject the premise of your question entirely, but <laughs> please <laughs> I feel, feel free. Like <laughs> I was shown this model of like, oh, you can be an academic and do these incredible things and be these incredible people that are so engaged with the world. So it, it, it did have appeal to me, but I think there was something about being a musician that forced me out of my comfort zone at different times and that fed a different part of me that I've always had that's been the ham that like would get up on stage and kind of like play the piano so furiously that my hands start bleeding and like just like and then keep going and like I did that in high school. Like I always had that part of me too. And so I had both those coexisting and it was kind of like, well, which one's going to win out here? Mm. And so Harvard gave me money to go live in Mexico for a year to study folk music and play folk music. And there was just no really going back, even though I kind of still dabbled in it. I got that job teaching back at Harvard and I kept working as a research assistant for different professors. Um, I was kind of like I got a taste of what it was like to just be a musician and travel around and write songs all day and just think about music. And, and like the places that it took me and the people I got to meet that way you know, I just felt like, wow, like this is going to be this way to connect with people and kind of meet, you know, when I would go to a party and I could 
sit for a while I like learned all these songs I could kind of sit in the corner and play for three hours like just Mexican folk songs and oh, wow. ballads and mariachi songs like I could do that and I was and it was like I just felt like oh this is an incredible way to interact and be with people and kind of meet them in a different way than coming as an academic to study or I don't know to just be in the archives all day like I knew there were other mo- ways to be an academic and you could do incredible work with people and be engaged but you do have to spend a lot of time by yourself and there's some critical distance built into that role and I think for me like the idea of just being a musician and and leaning into that love of mine and that way of relating to the world yeah just like once I got a taste of it there was just no going back in terms of your writing, you've said getting involved in Mexican folk music helped me become a different kind of songwriter. Um, so how did writing in this style impact your music? And like, when did you first see that happening? And how does it still happen for you? Yeah, it's amazing that it, it's such an ongoing process. I've, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot because of the, uh, the, the work I've been doing with Alec on these new projects. And... Uh, there's another project that Susan and I have been working on with um, our friend Anthony DaCosta. And like each song is driven by a different Mexican folk instrument. You know, and I, I realized that some of it is, yeah, just like these different rhythms and textures and sounds that each instrument holds is like this. It's a new starting point every time I pick it up and try to work on a new song. And if I'm stuck with a song, then I just pick up one of the other instruments. And I'm not that good at any of them but I'm I kind of can like <laughs> hack my way through a lot of them yeah and so it just gives me all these different colors to play with that I always found like if I play guitar it's really hard for me to not just play it like I learned as a you know a folk musician in Missouri like I just go back into the boom chick pattern mm-hmm. and then when I pick up these other Mexican guitars like instantly I just start playing different rhythms and the way I relate to them is like it just I get to kind of discard all of my old habits and start fresh and so I've found that so invigorating as a songwriter and it just it's so exciting to like plug in the haranas that have the pickups on them and run them through all the different pedals and like it's just another world that opens up instantly for me that I have access to that I wouldn't have had otherwise the harana is your guitar that's yeah one of the small Mexican guitars I play um and in general I think when you start learning another folk tradition or style and you hear um, how the the words work, where the songs kind of, the lyrics fold over themselves. And I've, I've used it a lot for my own songs. It's been one of the kind of main inspiration points for something like Yes, Marie, Yes. Here, let me, let me think. I almost have to like have an instrument. I can't like <laughs> recite the lines, you know? Well, go get one. All right, let me grab it. <laughs> All right, I always find that this Yes, Marie, Yes is such an easy example, but Guest House is a great one as well. Um, oh, your broken tail at eyes, your broken tail at eyes, your broken tail at eyes, I get too near, I get too near. Oh, time is kind of clockwise, time is kind of clockwise. Time is kind of clockwise, and you review me, and you review me. Um, so there's all these, I mean, that's one where I'm, I kind of go on to the next lines, but there's a lot of times where there's 
they sing things, they keep singing the line again and again, and they go on to the next part, and then you kind of come back around to what you sang at the beginning. Cool. It's hard to, I'm, sometimes I do a better job of explaining it than I just did, but um, it lets you sing these lines, and every time you sing it, you can kind of reemphasize a different part of the line and let it take on a new meaning. And then you say something you said before, but now you say it at the end of the verse. And it, inevitably, as a songwriter, you start, well, if that's where I'm going to get, the first line of the verse is also going to be the last line or the last couplet. Like, what has to transpire in the verse that allows me to say it again and have it mean something different? Oh, that's so cool. And so it's just this tool that they've developed. And I think, I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit like an academic or something, but there is, some of it's just like, when I think, well, how, why did the music develop like that? And some of it seems like, oh, well, it must be because it's call and response music. Like, you have this line and, and a lot of it's improvisational in a fandango and someone's like says the line they proclaim it and they say it the line a couple times so you can learn it and then it goes back around you know like it's trying to almost teach the next person how to sing the line mm -hmm. and it helps someone as opposed to if you're going to try to do improvisational call and response like that's just really hard to do even if you speak the language so it, it has so much repetition built in and going back to the lines earlier and all that callback which i think just makes it so much uh, more shareable mm -hmm. so i've i've used that a lot um i think for me i studied jazz but still like when i went write songs it was kind of more in that alt country world where i feel like okay well the rhythms are pretty set in terms of what we do here in four four and there's just like for me kind of getting to start exploring six eight and learning all these syncopated rhythms and i don't know there's just like something about where those songs go and the kind of energy that those songs give me when I sing and perform and dance on stage and when we get a rhythm section together and it's just like as opposed to kind of working in this narrow bandwidth all of a sudden it's just the aperture just opens so dramatically Hey everybody, it's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. Very convenient. You start communicating in under 48 hours. Professional counseling done securely online. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT plus matters, grief, self-esteem, Anything that you share is confidential, and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com songwriter. Bye. All right, let's talk about Suze. All right. You and Suze were introduced to each other in 2007 through a mutual friend. You were looking for a fiddle player. She plays the fiddle. Her background was like old time Irish, a little bit of classical. What was it like for you when you first played and sang together, and how have you made each other better musicians? It was um, it was pretty magical from the beginning. Um, I mean, I never had had a, a female collaborator. It had always been my cousin Jordan. And so I think instantly, like, there's just a different, I don't know, you're coming at it in a different way. 
I hate to kind of like stereotype men and women, but I think there is something, maybe it's just, I think, I think it's so beautiful when it really works because I don't know, like your way, your voices blend is just different. And for me, like we just started singing these songs and it was like, whoa, these songs just feel so different to sing it as a duet. Like a, when a man's singing about a woman or singing to a woman, but to sing it as a duet, all of a sudden it just like, it has so much more depth and it has, um, a richness to all the lines that wasn't there earlier. You know, I think that I fell in love with like the in high school listening to Graham Parsons and Amy Lou Harris. So that was kind of this like ideal in my mind that I never thought I would ever get to experience, you know, like to have a man and woman sing together and like I don't think Graham Parsons has that great of a voice. He's amazing. I I love him so much, but it's not that voice is not what you draws me in, but it's like the way Amy Lou Harris sings with him that makes mm. his voice really, for me, like feel compelling. And so I think for me to start singing with Susan, like to feel that same thing where I'm like, oh, this is a sound, the two voices together and the way that she is just such an incredible harmony singer and is like, knows how to support me at different moments and like is breathing with me and is like so synced up. It's like all of a sudden you just become more aware of yourself as a singer. Yeah, I've just learned so much from the way that she is such a masterful harmonist. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, now it's, I think sometimes it's hard to break it down into a, a coherent narrative because it's just like, I'm just such a, a more, I feel like sophisticated and sensitive musician because of her and because of working with her for the last 12 or 13 years. I don't know. It's not without, it's like complications, like any kind of working relationship, but we've loved just this last year of working together from home and we've been making a couple records here in our home studio. And so we've just been able to kind of explore all these different sides of collaborating that feel like, oh my gosh, like we've been working together for 12 years, but it's like, it feels like all of a sudden we've just realized that there are 10 other different ways for us to collaborate and work together. And I think that's just a testament to two people who love each other and that are kind of like growing and then growing together and kind of in dialogue and all these different ways in their life. And there are things that I've been learning more about, kind of, I've been working on singing harmony to her more in the last year than I've ever had in the last 12 years. And so I'm learning a lot from her there. And this one project we're working on now is kind of like, what's the most effortless part of music for each other? And then we kind of like try to build a song, like really um, playing to each other's strengths. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some degree, maybe we've been doing that all along, but now we're really explicitly doing it where it's like, all right, I'll come up with the, this pattern on Mexican guitar and start playing it and she'll come up with this beautiful melody and then I'll write a bunch of words and then she'll sing her, her part and then she'll double it, then she'll harmonize and then she'll do another harmony and then she'll do some other like alternate harmony and she'll do those all in one take basically. Like it's just she knows where all those things are and that would take me like four mm. days to figure out for myself, <laughs> you know. So we're making this new record that's in that world and it's just like maybe also the pandemic, you like kind of really have to rely on your whatever your home unit is in a different way. Yeah. Being in Charlottesville, which you guys moved to in 2015, you've got two kids, Susan's parents are there. Um, what has this pandemic year been like in terms of like being and living in your town, which you've, you've been on the road doing like crazy big tours, little house concerts, club gigs. Your kids have been on the road with you, uh, but now you're home and also, in in particular, like being in Charlottesville, like your previous record, Line of Light, had songs in reaction to the white supremacist rally that happened there. Like, how are you connecting 
to where you live in different ways? Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's so focused on this like little plot of land that we live on. And some of that's just the nature of, you know, taking the social distancing seriously and kind of because we're interacting and relying on Suze's parents for help. Um, we're just trying to be uber careful about kind of who we're interacting with and and partly because of Suze's like deep love of gardening and like wanting to kind of really develop this land that we're on, even though it's like in the city, like it's not a rural place, but it's like we're trying to like make it, especially Suze, like make it a world on this little acre of ours. And um, if it's even that, it's probably not even that acre, but it's felt like so hyper-focused in this, like in making our home life and like each room a little more cozy and for me kind of like making this little attic room like a real studio for us to do the live streams and to make these records and for Suze to have like a writing room for her projects writing projects and art projects yeah so a lot of it has been really focused it's like I guess we're in Charlottesville but it's almost like we're the most removed from Charlottesville in some ways than we've ever been oh, wow. um, because we're so home focused but it's like that's felt like such a gift because when we even when we get home from tour I was realizing like oh yeah I'm just like I'm I'm still going out we're going out a ton like because that's one of the great things about Charlottesville there's these amazing music venues that are just down the street from us mm-hmm. and so many people come through town so we're just hosting people all the time we're like out at shows hanging out afterwards shows you know like it just it's we have a very social outward life even when we're home and so for us it's been such a gift to be inward focused and still and burrowed in and kind of really rooting into one place um okay the band started as this diy project where basically you said yes to everything you never turned down a gig you played in people's living rooms and you've stayed seemingly like fairly nimble you know from a outside perspective throughout your career and you've seen like a lot of the industry turn on its head probably like several times over like you've been a buzz band and npr darling the hottest ticket in town and you've kind of like from again an outsider's perspective it seems like you've come out of the other side of that like fairly unscathed and pretty grounded (laughs) but david i would imagine that you have like a lot to say about the changes you've seen in your career, like particularly in this last year? One of the things I'm cognizant of is that it's been a really hard year for a lot of people. And so I, I try to be mindful of that when I talk about it. Um, and I do have this fear about like, what's what are things gonna look like when this is all over? Which I, I think, you know, my, we just, our booking agent just asked us about pushing back the dates that we've already pushed back a year to another year. So we're going to push our dates back. It'll be two years from when they were initially planned for. Oh, wow. I mean, I know that this, the Save Our Stages bill, you know, that money was passed. So hopefully venues are going to survive, but a lot have already gone by the wayside. And we don't, we don't know what the world's going to look like after COVID. Um, but for us, we just felt, I don't know. I mean, I'm just counting my blessings a lot because my family's all safe and healthy right now and I think we were at a point with our audience where it's been a pretty easy transition to this life for us like we have the fans that have been engaged with the band in some form in the last 13 years of living on the road and really hard touring Um, but doing it in a way that I think 
uh, things never got that big. They never like exploded. Like we've just remained a very accessible band. Like we'll always we've been at the merch table after every show. We like still do a lot of DIY shows and like play in a lot of community events and spaces and have had so much flexibility about that. And so I think people feel like they really sincerely know us and there's not, I don't know, like people are really rooting for us, it feels like. And so I've felt like just buoyed so incredibly by our community of listeners and and just like this wide community that sustains us on the road when we do this DIY family touring and now is like watching the live streams. And for a while, I mean, three days a week, we were doing live streams for the first couple months those were like our public ones. And then we were doing four or five private shows each week too. So we were like every night we were performing up here and it was just like this way for us to stay connected, to sustain ourselves. And like, just cause it felt like, what else are we going to do? Like this is, we don't know when we're going to get to do our thing again. So this is just like, this is our new normal. So let's just like dig into this. And, you know, we are also just so fortunate that technology has come along at this perfect moment for us to like have high speed internet in our house and be able to like do these streaming shows and people just Venmo us money and for the Patreon model to kind of already be like, there's some history there. And so I don't know, I'd have all these excuses for not doing it, but now it's like all those excuses melt away and you're like, all right, mm-hmm. we're going to do the Patreon. We're yeah. going to live stream every week. You know, like I think it's just this mindset that we've had all along, but I think it's really served us well in this moment where it's like, this is an opportunity like any crisis is an opportunity. And so you kind of have to be like, well, it's amazing that there's like this government safety net that's going to make sure we don't starve. There's like this incredible community of people that want to pitch into the live streams and help us. Like the government has these loans that helped us like pay off some credit card debt. And it's just like, there's these incredible things happening right now that I know we're fortunate. We're able to like take advantage of some of those things, but it's like just also this mindset I think we've had that's like, what's, what can we do with this time and space? And I think a lot of musicians I know have just, we were running ourselves ragged on the road and mm-hmm. so much time spent on the tour logistics and all the stress around promoting the shows. And even for a smaller band like us, like just supporting so many people on the road. And like, we were just lucky if we came home from a tour with anything in the bank. I mean, because, you know, once you have the kind of like all the the people you want to take care of in the band and all the team that helps you book the shows and just like the expenses of keeping a group of 10 people on the road, it's a lot. Right. So like for us to like be able to just do these shows from our house and no travel and like put our kids to bed and then come up and do a show and not have any expenses for the show. I mean, it just it's kind of it's been amazing. And you know, like I said, I think we were just lucky that we had been at it for so long that we had that relationship with the fans already and people knew us and knew our music and that because it's a partnership, there's just like their nights where I'm not feeling that great. And Sue's just as kind of like putting on an incredible show and engaging with everybody in the audience and like making, I think people feel like that we're together in this, in this new weird way. I just feel like we've learned and grown so much as a musician this year in terms of all the songs we've learned and just trying to keep the live streams fresh. Man, Suze is a star on the stream. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, she's like, she knew immediately how to do it. Yeah, yeah. She's just such incredible ease with it. Um, I think that's been a big part of our success that she just kind of like, all right, this is, we're here. All right, She can just talk and <laughs> yeah, like I have, I have all these things I want to talk about and share and like, yeah, I mean, she's always had that gift with the audience, I think. That's so disarming. That's just like, all right, we're here together. And it's like, 
you know, how can we serve you guys? How can we, what, how are you doing? Like, what's your, what's going on? You know, like, it's just this way, I think, that's allowed us to be successful because it's just, it's just who she naturally is. Mm -hmm. And I think it lets people kind of be more vulnerable with the music and the band. I got to tell you, talking a little bit more about how much I love Suze, um, (laughs) I was watching this video of you guys when you were visiting China as like international ambassadors. And I started like literally like crying when she was talking about what she felt like you guys were doing there. Here, I wrote it down. She said, I think in some ways being musicians, we do embody the American dream of pursuing happiness. I think it's important to see models of people pursuing things that aren't the society's norms to show another way. And I was like, oh my God, that's so beautiful. (laughs) And then at the end of the video, she starts crying because she's like sad that she's like leaving all these friends that she's made in China. And I'm just like, Suze is just like <laughs> the most wonderful person alive. I'm sorry, David, she is. Yeah. No, I I know it. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm, I count myself lucky every day that I'm married to her. So, I mean, we just got the final mixes for her new record and uh, I'm, I'd love for you to have set up a time to you guys to really dig into it and totally. hear her side of yeah. all this. That goes without saying. We're used to doing joint interviews and sharing the mic, but there's a, like, I really want to have this opportunity for her to like really go deep on this record with people. And it's such a gift. It's such a beautiful work of art that her and uh, her friend Anthony DaCosta made. This episode is coming out April 15th, so maybe it is going to be out by the time you, dear listener, are hearing this interview. The album title, let's see if I can pronounce it, <laughs> Euphoric Ouroboric. Wonderful. Wow, that was... That was perfect, Cindy. Thank you. (laughs) So euphoric, I'm familiar with that word. Uroboric, I had to look it up, and it's like the snake eating its own tail. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so tell me about that. All right. (laughs) Um, This is our first release of many, euphoric uroboric. I came across that word, and I thought, oh, that's like what I'm experiencing right now. (laughs) Is this like... (laughs) I'm, you know, that kind of like eating my tail, like the, um, it's just like the self-referential world that we're living in when we're isolated and you're kind of like in dialogue with yourself. And especially for me, I'd never recorded myself. I just kind of avoided that whole side of making music because I just found incredible producers to work with, amazing studios. Like we just prioritized that feeling like, oh yeah, that's just, that's not our game. We like, we can write songs, perform, like that's, that's our, you know, ball of wax. So then I done worked on a song with Alex Spiegelman, who's been a longtime collaborator of ours since the very early days. Previous Basic Folk guest, too. Wonderful. Yeah, inc- just an incredible person, musician, collaborator. Yeah, so much love for Alex Spiegelman. So he reached out, and he's like, you know that, that song we did in my studio in Brooklyn? Like, I've been working on it, and, you know, maybe we could do something remotely, and, you got, you know, we could kind of send stuff back and forth and do some more tracks. Like, I've time and availability now I'm home and I've loved what he's done as a producer with the Anna Aggie stuff and all the cuddle magic music mm. and magic of that band um he was down in Richmond finishing up like our next big kind of like big full band record that is all done now and he was just like such a joy to be in the studio with for a couple of days and just has so much to offer so I was like yeah I'd love to work with Alec that sounds amazing and so we started working on Euphoric Ouroboric and yeah, so there was this sense of like I spent all this time learning how to comp my vocal, listen to my vocal, listen to my 
like have to kind of like really lay yourself bare in the home studio environment. Uh, you're like, oh, I can't play electric guitar. Like, what am I doing here? But then you're like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to learn the part. I'm going to sing harmony with myself. Like all these things that have, like I would never do in a studio because it was on the clock or we were mm -hmm. paying money for it or you rely on other people and their skill set. But here it's like this little self-referential world, even though I'm, you know, doing it all with Alec and with Suze, but so much time alone in the studio and, and it felt like, well, but there's something euphoric about that for me. Like I'm loving it. And I feel like <laughs> I'm just kind of like every day blowing my mind and like, I just did that. Or like, you know, like you kind of have this experience of like, it's not like the snake eating its tail. It like sounds like real dire, but it's like, no, there's something celebratory about what's happening here for me. And I feel like a kid at the candy store <laughs> playing with these tools and the microphones and just like borrowing these mics from my neighbor and just like working on this record with Alec gave me the opportunity to every day just like try something new, try another one of my instruments I've never tried before in the studio or try to mic it in a new way or run a weird sound on it. Or I recorded me and Sue's playing Harana and fiddle on something, but then I was like, all right, take the Harana out and just play penny whistle with that. And then we started like building a track and he's like, okay, now you're going to build this track as if you don't play anything. Like you're not, you're just going to like assemble it you know, like all the different little loops we've made and you're going to try to assemble it and then start singing over it. And, you know, I just like, I've been doing this since I was 13 and I'd never written a song like that. When you've been doing something for so long and then you learn a new way to do it, it's just like, what? Oh my God, I've been missing out on this whole other realm of making music and creating in the studio and with all these new tools that are available to us. So I felt like that euphoria of that experience. And I, I hope that that's what is carried out in this new record that it's just it was so fun to make and it was such a wonderful kind of experimental record it's fun to listen to good i like the auto tune <laughs> it's pretty funny was that alec yeah that so was yeah. alec's idea he's such an interesting musician and i think as a producer is kind of like he just comes at it from like some other angle that i never would have thought of i would just play something and he would just like alter it in such like the guitar on helen can you forgive me was just like, I just played him an iPhone demo, but he just cut that up and affected it in such a mesmerizing way. I was like, what? I want to sing to that and play to that. Like, That's cool. You know, so it was just like all this give and take of me sending little snippets of stuff and him altering it and looping it and sending it back or building some cool, weird, random loop for me to play to. Yeah, I just felt like the brain was on fire with just kind of like, oh, how fun it is to make music you know I don't know like, yeah and not sometimes I'm in the studio and I love it too but I'm it's stressful we're spending so much money we're thinking about like mm -hmm. ah, just, how are we going to feed everybody here like all right we have 10 days to make this record all right we've got to finish these lyrics right now you know like so yeah it was just like it felt so liberating so that record is out now euphoric ouroboric and then if people want to find out more but David Wax Museum, the best thing you can do is become a Patreon. A patron. <laughs> but um, yeah, Suze's record. And then David Wax Museum number two for 2021. Anything else? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Those are the main things for now. Okay. We're, we're, we're feeling like uh, just the floodgates are opening creatively and i think that's just good keep them coming we're, we're just, there's so much coming so the that best way yeah we're just going to keep putting new songs up all the time on patreon and then we're going to slowly figure out how those things are actually released in the wider world cool yeah we're so excited excited to be making music right now it feels like such a great time to be alive as a musician i hope other musicians feel that even as hard as it is right now in so many other ways people need it right now 
I think that's an important part of this, that people realize how much we were taking it for granted. Totally. Yes. Um, David Wax, before you go, could you do the lightning round real quick? Sure. Okay. Here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, I don't know. Maybe like Blister in the Sun. Cute. What is your karaoke song? I'm, I don't have one. I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. If you were at a Fandango and they did Mexican karaoke, what would you sing? <laughs> Uh, Ella okay. by Jose Alfredo Jimenez. That's like a, a mariachi classic. They wouldn't play that at Fandango, but that, that would be my, my choice if I were like at a cantina karaoke bar. I love that. Dogs or cats or something else? Um, dogs. You sure? Well, I'm not much of a pet person. Oh. I have terrible allergies. Oh, and, well, uh, so. it's not your fault. Thanks. <laughs> not your fault. Um, what is your coffee order? Just the darkest roast possible and black coffee i have it with oat milk oh oh (laughs) delightful uh who's your first celebrity crush oh there were so many as a kid i can't think of who the first one was probably like michelle pfeiffer that's a good one (laughs) okay besides suze who is the nicest musician you've ever met um rhett miller he is very nice geez that's a good one First album you bought with your own money? Um, Aerosmith, the one with the cow on the cover. <laughs> what, is uh, what was your first concert? Well, I remember kind of being at a concert when I was at, at Disney World as a kid. There was the guy who sang the voice for the Little Mermaid for the um, crab. Oh, is he a famous guy? I don't know. He was famous to me. I mean, <laughs> um, that's pretty big. But uh, Judy Collins. With my mom and my grandma was one of those like really first. That's a good one. Bobby McFerrin. I saw a lot as a kid with my parents at the University of Missouri. Flying invisibility. Uh, Invisibility. Uh, This is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Um, Gilitla in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. One of my favorite places in the world. So beautiful. Incredible. Mountainous. Tropical. Mm. Part of central Mexico. Wonderful. All right, David Wax, thanks for being on the podcast. It was so great to talk to you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for listening to the record, for all the great questions, for doing all the amazing things you do for folk music and the community. Oh, thank you. Basic Folk This Week, produced by superhero Sarah Wardrop. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thank you to our friends there. You can find each episode of Basic Folk at uh, my website, cindyhouse.net, or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. It's thrilling to be talking to you after an hour-ish of talking and I'll wrap it up and we'll just talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye.